welcome to Yoga for the Revolution, a show about self-care in the age of resistance. In just a moment, we'll dive into part two of a conversation with writer, educator, and activist Carol Horton. In part one of this dialogue, we opened by talking about the documentary Wild Wild Country, our own personal exposure to Osho. We asked the question, can you separate the teacher from the teachings? And then discussed whether that was even the right question to be asking at all. I recommend you take a listen. In this next part of the conversation, we get into politics and the Rolling Stones and talk more about the practices of yoga and the conscious and unconscious mind. If you are new to me, new to the show, hello. And you can learn more about this show, listen to all past and future episodes, and get all my social media info by going to yogafortherevolution.org. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app of your choice. So without going on and on, I want to get back into this conversation with Carol Horton. We're diving right back in, talking about how the people of Antelope and the Rajneeshis were living in the same world, but really existing in two separate realities. And gosh, doesn't that sound so America circa November 2016? They're right next door to each other, but they're living in different worlds. Absolutely. I mean, for me, it, it may as well have been a fable <laughs> of or an allegory for what is happening currently in the political world. And, and one of the things I was totally struck by is, is the ability to recognize, and I think part of the way the directors presented the documentary, my allegiance or my agreement uh, changed based you know, throughout the, the six episodes, you know, it, it completely shifted back and forth. It was a, a, a tiny personal roller coaster ride in that way. And for me, that was helpful. If I had already decided it was an allegory for our current political system and how bifurcated we are right now, then if no other lesson can be learned, it is, at least for me, to be compassionate and not so walled off and so tied to my ideals, which I believe are absolutely right, and I feel righteous about them, but without understanding anything about what I would call the other side, you know, that we will always be at an impasse, and, and tragedy will occur one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think the whole experience of kind of who did you as a viewer personally identify with watching the documentary, and that's definitely something i reflected on both in conjunction with that and then also just um, with other things from that time, which I think very much ties into some of these other instances of grappling with the past that you brought up, like um, the Me Too stuff, the, you know, you mentioned the Picasso painting, obviously that's an earlier time, but let me just give some content to this. So I think um, having grown up, like I was in high school in the late 1970s. And so, like I said, I vaguely remember some of this stuff. And it was like, I was in a super liberal community. Um, you know, there was plenty of, you know, drugs and experimentation and sort of post hippie, like just beginning new wave punk rock scene sort of culture, all that sort of stuff. And so I think coming from that kind of background, um, the sort of formative years me would come to something like this documentary predisposed to identify more with the people who went to Rajneeshpuram, you know, who 
I, I could see myself being one of those people if I had been, you know, a little different age, a little different time, a little different place. But now so much time has gone by, you know, older, like I have, you know, a mortgage, you know, that that's no longer so true, even that, you know, <laughs> and, and I kind of, and also like that whole era has passed. And so we all look at it sort of like, what the hell were these people doing? You know, cause we're in such a different time. And also I identified in a way that I never would have before more with the antelope people and kind of like, Hey, yeah. Who are all these like orange clad, like hippie weirdos coming in and like droves to, you know, kind of our world. I don't like this. I've said, you know, I've worked my whole life hard. I've settled down here. I, I think when I was younger, I never could have related to this at all, but now I do. And it was really interesting. Like I feel both through age and also through doing the, a lot of yoga and so on. Uh, I have developed kind of more of ability to like hold different realities in my consciousness at the same time without having to settle on one. So it's like, I can identify with both the people who came to that and were felt completely opposed to the antelope people. And I can identify with the antelope people who didn't like them coming at the same time. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I'll try to loop it up. I also recently watched a documentary about the Rolling Stones. Yeah, it was around, when was Altamont? That was late 1960s. So this was like a little earlier, but still kind of went well into the 1970s, late 60s through the 1970s. And they they really did a good job, just sort of like this movie did, of, of kind of recapturing the sense of that time. Because there was a lot of original footage and it wasn't just this sort of like talking heads documentary with little clips of what happened that it was more kind of immersing you into the footage from that time, which is uh, such a, you know, incredible thing we can do with film. And um, I was really struck by, um, okay, so there was this scene where I don't know how like you or to what extent the people who want to listen to this uh, knows the Rolling Stones, but there was this scene where um, the Rolling Stones are kind of at their height of their decadent glory and uh, in front of this huge, like, you know, concert crowd, just tons and tons of people. They're giving these really dramatic performance of Midnight Rambler. And Keith Richards in a voiceover coming back is saying like, yeah, that was like our greatest sort of, you know, blues operatic song and so on. I mean, Midnight Rambler is a song glorifying rape. Like, I, I remember when I first realized that because I grew up listening to this and just think it was a great song. Like, I loved this music, you know. And then when it dawned on me what these songs were about, like Brown Sugar, Midnight Rambler, it's like, oh, my God, this is so offensive. Now, this happened to me a while back now. And I actually, uh, just on a very personal level, once I started realizing what it was about, I could not enjoy it in the same way. It wasn't so much an ideological thing, like, I will never listen to the Rolling Stones again. But it's just like, whoa. It was just too explicit, you know. It's not just like, hey, this person in their personal life did some stuff. It's like, this is what the song is about. And on top of that, so here's this scene. And there is a huge crowd with thousands and thousands of people, and they are so into it. And, you know, at least half the crowd is women. And they're, you know, Mick Jagger is like this huge sex symbol for them. And that was that time, yeah. <laughs> you know. And that was normal. And that was not only normal, it was cool, you know. And then I'm thinking, like, wow, like I grew up sort of thinking, like not really understanding a lot of what was going on and, you know, thinking certain things were cool that now I look back and I identify with the people I thought were these kind of horrible conservatives, like saying, you know, 
this kind of stuff is decadent and bad. And what about, you know, traditional values? I'm like, well, wait a minute. They're actually right in certain ways. And then I'm kind of like, well, what? But I don't agree with where they went with that. You know, (laughs) a lot of, I'm doing a lot of reconsidering, you know, both in terms of my own kind of personal perspectives on things and um, what people take for granted and how it is contextualized in the times and in the social groups that we're part of and how swept up we can be in things and how we can be kind of mm, blind to how what we're so caught up in looks from a different perspective, have zero interest, understanding, sympathy for it. (laughs) And then, you know, decades later, I know at least I myself could look back and be sort of like, wow, like I was sort of, you know, caught up in some stuff that I certainly wouldn't want my kids to be caught up in now. You know what I mean? It's just weird. Yeah. And I think, you know, rock and roll has been religion for teenagers for a long time. You know, I mean, it really, the anthems of our youth seep into parts of our brain that aren't fully formed yet and help us turn into who we become. And so the fact that some of these anthems are, you know, are, are painful, you know, to look at again as an adult and be like, what, why, you know, it's our own kind of indoctrination that I think is really fascinating. You had mentioned that we're not currently in the in the guru worship time, that that was mm-hmm. something that happened and really was a wave that, that swept over the country. And I agree that it's not guru worship now, but I do feel like it's always worth looking at, well, what is the wave? Because we are all getting swept up subconsciously into something. I mean, all you have to do is look back at history. You know, anything I learned in school, I was like, they had separate water fountains? Like, what are you talking about? How is that okay? And, Mm. you know, people who lived at the time are like, well, it was normal. That's the way it was. And I never really understood that. I think until, honestly, until the election, when I realized how much of our lives I had just been accepting without questioning. Mm. Because things are okay for me. So... I wasn't necessarily faced head on with prejudice or with, you know, a lot, a lot of the things that are going on in our country. And so I was able to choose not to see it in a way that I, I'm not able to currently choose that. And I'm uncomfortable and happy about that. My only point there is to say it may not be guru worship now, but, but it is something and it may not be Midnight Rambler or Harvey Weinstein movies anymore, mm-hmm. But it's something and and um, part of the practice of yoga that I appreciate the most, in addition to the ability to have compassion and see two sides or multiple sides of a story, is um, is just the self-inquiry and the perspective that I'm by no means expert at, but just starting to kind of dip a pinky into mm. to maybe realize, oh, that's an that's an interesting assumption, you know, (laughs) in meditation to go kind of reflect back on like, well, that was an interesting thought to have. Where did that come from? (laughs) And just, just question. So maybe not as much question authority as question self. Yeah. It gives us some, a little bit of distance on our own thoughts and taken for granted and a little more ability to, um, see our emotions and thoughts arising from a broader, field of consciousness and um, 
you know, connecting to that, I think is, you know, this story gets like really deep because I was going to say it's like enormously helpful. And, you know, it's like you can connect to this sort of deep, peaceful witness consciousness and so on. And I believe all that's true. It's been super helpful to me. But what's also true is like looping back to the um, film and your discussion of that um, breathing technique or whatever it was that you had done that they did in the film that looks so disturbing. I, I mean, it's just it's incontrovertibly true that these kind of altered states of consciousness that can be so beneficial and can help give us more purchase on sort of the taken for granted of life, which often lead down a lot of blind alleys and just, you know, promote endless reactivity. They can also like fold into experiences that produce some really, for lack of a better term, just sort of evil stuff, you know, and it's, you know, it's not just the teachings having to be separated, like the questions are the teachings separated from the teacher, which makes it more kind of the focus on the doctrine or the, you know, the ideas, um, the philosophy. But there's also this question of sort of what we might call like the spiritual experience vis-a-vis our conduct as human beings in the world and certainly ethical questions, you know, like those two things are not like, there's just so much evidence that there's no necessary connection between having what somebody would, I I think, call for lack of a better term, a a sort of profound spiritual experience, a mystical state, a shift of consciousness, something like that. There's not necessarily any connection between that and behaving like a decent human being in the world. And even beyond that, like not doing things that are actually abusive and terrible, (laughs) And that that's like something that is really like that just goes really deep, I think, to me, to the question of kind of I think it's really challenging to live a like good life. You know what I mean? In the sense of like um, being aware, being ethical, being um, not just kind of blindly swept up and stuff, having feeling that things are meaningful to you. Like That is just it is just not easy because these, um, there's so many things to, um, integrate, right? Like sort of the inner experience, the outer world, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, your, you know, connection with your family, your connection with your community, your community's position vis-a-vis other communities, um, you know, where you just happen to be born into in the social order, where your country is in the international order. Like how, how are you really going to be like, aware and um, sort of proactively responsible, responsive to in an ethical way to all these different things that are so much, you know, and I think it for people on the um, kind of spiritual path, there's definitely a tendency to think that if we have these experiences of altered states of consciousness that feel so meaningful and so good, right, that like, that's the key that's going to unlock everything else. I think that's a very natural thing. But you know what? There's so much evidence that that is not true. And it's not just in the yoga world. I mean, look at the Catholic Church and their sex abuse scandals, you know? I mean, it's just, I think it's, you know, I think it's pretty much a universal. You're going to find it in, in, in many, 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 many different situations, the same sort of thing. And that, I don't know, like it opens up some really difficult questions for me. Yeah, huge questions. I mean, huge questions. There's, I'm so glad you articulated that 
particularly in that way, because I feel like especially right now, the kind of Western wellness machine is so internal focused. It's so my experience. It's about my experience and how I feel and what I eat and how I do my practice. And it's just so, so myopic in that way, as opposed to being, um, and we get, you know, myself included, get greedy for that. That's a human, I think it's a very human quality. I did something that felt good. I felt good about myself. I want to keep doing that thing. Right. Um, without having a lens towards community, culture, everybody else. Where are they? How are, how are they living in this world? The people outside of my, my own little Rajneesh Puram in my brain, right? You know, I, I, I think it, it also gets tricky because, you know, I, I think that abuse needs to be condemned and called out. And, and I think what went on with, um, you know, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and Sheila and all that was, you know, like out and out, you know, abusive, in some cases criminal, um, just terrible uh, stuff and, and people need to be held responsible. On the other hand, you know, to kind of just get on your, you know, sort of high horse and condemn like everybody who had anything to do with this. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's really problematic. And, um, and even the people like, you know, who knows, like somebody like Sheila, very, she, she struck me as a sociopath, you know, sort of like, no, in the sense of like an inability to really feel empathy for others and very, um, good at sort of working relationships to achieve power. But, I mean, it's also true that some people who do terrible things are not terrible people, and and who can even make that determination? I mean, it's it just gets it gets very complicated, and I I do feel like um, there's always needs to be balances struck, you know, between being willing to call things out that are problematic, but also being willing to see the complexity of lives and situations, and the fact that you know, we're all probably through somebody else's lens occupying positions that are in some way ethically compromised and problematic ourselves. And, you know, I guess there's no place of absolute purity. Um, kind of, you know, that's why I had started out saying my general philosophy is sort of when you go too far down the road of like trying to kind of purge out all the bad stuff, you know, um, I think it gets really like it becomes its own totalitarianism that produces its own evils. Right. There's no purity to be had in this life is my belief. Like we we just we have to be humble and do our best, <laughs> you know, but to think that we're going to arrive at this place where like we're the completely right group with the completely right views with the completely right everything, you know, it's just it just leads to another cycle of the same kind of heartless um, treatment of others that one was perhaps thinking we're going to eradicate. I'm taking a deep breath. Because <laughs> that's all very critical thinking <laughs> that needs to be done around that. And I almost feel like any response to that particular moment feels a little more trite than it might need to be. Yeah, I was thinking even tangentially just about the moment where they – this was one of the parts of the roller coaster for me where they bust in a bunch of people who had been homeless. And I was like, yes, they're, you know, they're doing something good. And then they, you know, were doing it so they could register them to vote. And then when they couldn't handle it, they, you know, put drugs in their beer. And, you know, it was such a, that one moment felt so 
poignant in terms of the shift of was it a good intention that went wrong or, you know, is there something beyond your your purity, that thought of purity and, and what happens when it degrades? And then for me, I just took it out and out and out into our current society. And, you know, what's happening racially and politically right now is is really not not incredibly different um, in terms of we're embracing people, but we're keeping them down. And I don't know that it's just a little complicated and if, if anything else, I'm what I'm super excited about was that this documentary that seemed to be about one particular moment in time and one particular thing actually has ripples and waves that are expanding beyond that one particular time and mm. allows us to talk about our current moment in time and allows us to talk about our current consciousness and our current practice and the effects that it has you know, internally and both reflected out into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it's, um, it seems to be a moment in which both in the yoga world and the political world, and the cultural world, um, in this country, this process of having the having what now feels like deeply disturbing information from the past, come up and be presented and have to be grappled with is happening um, with a vengeance, sort of a chickens coming home to roost moment. And people have to then figure out how to make sense of this and respond to it. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of it certainly in the yoga world is, um, made possible through the connectivity of social media, you know, things that used to, um, be more able to be contained within particular sorts of communities and the relationships there and therefore sort of hidden knowledge to um, most people can now like it just takes, you know, a few people who really want to push it on social media and, and to kind of get a voice and get traction and then it can go places. And so, you know, I've seen particularly with this these issues of like abuse in the yoga world around gurus and other charismatic leaders sort of, you know, just kind of steadily in fits and starts, but steadily snowball over the past, what, like maybe six years in particular. And this is like another round of it now. And then we see the same thing with, you know, like I was just, I just posted an article on Twitter yesterday about this new lynching museum that opened, I guess in Birmingham, Alabama, it sounds super intense you know, I remember I did not learn about the history of lynching in the United States until I was in graduate school. And I was like working on, um, I did a dissertation having to do with race and liberalism in the United States. And even though I went to a super progressive um, public school system, and it actually had been retrofitted um, in the 1960s to be like very racially progressive and social justice oriented and all that kind of stuff. And I went to liberal arts college and I mean, that just that history had just it was not part of the curriculum. I don't know if it was considered too shocking or, or, or what it was, but it was not there. And then I was doing my dissertation research and I started reading more specialized books about, you know, um, American racial history. I was stunned. I was like, you are kidding me. I mean, there used to be public lynchings and people would run like excursion trains out to view these things is like, and sell ticket. And like, Oh, I mean, it's just horrifying. I had no idea, no idea. 
I'm pretty like, I, you know, I don't know how you most people in the United States would have come across of my generation a more sort of quote unquote progressive education than, than I was able to experience. And it still was not part of my education. And um, now, you know, there's a lynching museum now, granted, you know, that doesn't mean everyone's going to know about it, but it's definitely a different time. You know, it's a different time, things that are coming up. And that was a big part of our history. And we have to grapple with it. And it's so hard. And I would say that what makes it particularly hard is that it's much easier to grapple with this challenging stuff and, you know, deal with groups who feel like for you are the other or, you know, are um, separated by huge cultural, social, economic, whatever divides. It's much easier to engage with that process if your life is in a relatively stable and safe place. And with the worsening inequality we've been experiencing since the 1970s, the vast majority of the population is not in a stable and safe place in their everyday lives. So it's extremely difficult to um, ask people to have sort of um, the wherewithal to like deal with all this information coming up on top of like an addition to grappling with the history, which changes the narrative of how you understand your group and your country and your history and place in the world, all that on top of all the things that are just happening right now. I mean, it's a huge ask. And I think, you know, that's why we're getting a lot of just highly reactive, emotionally charged conflict today. It's very worrisome. Very, very worrisome because I, you know, if we're not up to the task of kind of holding the space for some of this stuff to work out without coming into, you know, absolute reactive conflict, like we could be in civil war after a certain amount of time. We could, you know, just have people, a certain group say, like, enough of this kind of dynamic, like, we gotta like nail this down and like really shift into authoritarianism. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very volatile kind of boiling pot right now, and uh, I'm extremely concerned. And the trajectory is is certainly not guaranteed to, to go positive. And I think that part of what I think is so important about what you said earlier about the teacher and the teachings and the context is we are, for whatever reason, seem to be in search of a purity that doesn't exist. And so therefore, we have erased certain parts of our history. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, erased really important context to who we are as a country and as a nation and what that shared history is. Because we we did. We threw out the baby with the bathwater. That's bad. I don't like that part. Wash it away. And I think that, you know, again, chickens coming home to roost and it it finds its way even in the the yoga community sometimes, I think, when... The messages, you know, we talked about quotes from Osho, but the messages that get shared often that I see currently in my feed are still, or maybe prior to this year, but, you know, come from a place of abundance and don't live in fear and you can change your own life and all of that. And I think that if we pretend that every single citizen and non-citizen in this country could just will themselves into better circumstance, we're in dire need of a reset you know you can't you can't always meditate your way into bliss you know it's not 
Uh, and I think that especially what you were saying about a, a larger, larger portion of this population of our country living in fear, being in near poverty or poverty, you know, being on the edge of, of acceptable humanity, you know, I mean, in terms of like how we're treating our fellow citizens, not in terms of like behavior or anything, but just how, how we're treating the people around us and what we're affording them. I think it's, it is a little bit of that, the fault of a search for purity to say, well, okay, well, I don't like the way that looks. So let's just ignore it. And uh, let's think good thoughts and, you know, let's get to a place where we don't see the ugliness anymore. And to your earlier point, I think that the trajectory forward, the, the only way it can be positive is, okay, bring all the chickens home then. You got to bring them all home. We got to look at all of them. They got to all roost here and it's going to be a mess and we're going to have eggs everywhere, but we got to do it. Yeah. And the, the question though is how do you do that in a way that isn't devastating, right? How do you do that? And it, it, it can make it a little simpler just to bring it back to the level of the yoga community in you know North America. How do you how do you really grapple with all that and still keep the sense of inspiration and um, sort of passionate engagement with um, yoga as a practice that's you know not just athleticism and you know feel-good escapism, but it actually has a kind of a meaningful spiritual dimension to it. How, how do you do that? And it's, I've always felt that if you only hammer on the negatives, while I totally agree, mm. like we have to deal with the shadow side, we have to look at it. If it's, there's no guarantee if you only hammer on that, that you are going to um, process it in a positive way. Mm. Like there has to also be, I think, the side that sees the value and sees the good and and says you know despite all that there's still there's still this and that that's valid too and and that's what's so difficult is kind of maintaining it's sort of a non-dualism right like both are true it's not not it's not non-dual in that there's no distinction but that holding these two realities at the same time yeah um or sort of like we were saying uh talking about back with the um Rajni's Purim um, community, no matter what one might say that community is or is not culpable for in terms of the things that went on there and the complicity of the people who um, supported it, you know, there's just no doubt in my mind that there were also people who probably in some ways like deeply benefited from being there. They probably had relationships there that were super meaningful. They were probably genuinely idealistic about what was going on and maybe dismissed things that didn't fit that paradigm because for various reasons, they just were not able or ready to, you know, process the complexity of the whole thing. And um, like, I don't want to say that their experience was just nothing but bad. You know what I mean? Um, I don't think that's really helpful. So, but when we get into a more ambiguous territory and things that we consider positive and negative are going on at the same time, it becomes hard to discern. And that's why, you know, I think the yoga world would um, do much better to orient towards a desire for balance and integration as opposed to kind of purity, <laughs> like rather than just having sort of like the pure good, your life is going to be great. It's sort of like, you know, your life is going to be always going to be hard, but you can also have this beautiful practice and cultivate it, which will make the hard things more meaningful. And, you know, 
you're going to, we're going to try and do perhaps positive things in our relationships with others and our social position in the world. But there is so much that's beyond our little control in the world that we're not going to be able to change. We're going to have to live with that. Um, we have to endure the reality that we can't like wave the wand and, and make it all magically great. You know what I mean? We have to like live in this mess. And, um, I just think that's a really, like, it takes a level of maturity that uh, our culture does not encourage at all, um, at all, quite the opposite. Like, you know, I think some of this, um, you know, what go like this yoga is part of the whole spiritual marketplace and what sells in the spiritual marketplace, like the rest of the culture are easy, quick fixes. And, you know, those are not, they don't work. They don't work. I mean, just bottom line, they don't work. No, it's just. It's just the process. It's just like being in the process and, and like every day getting up and like practicing again, coming, you know, trying to be the best person you can be in the situation you were born into. Again, I, I just, I just think that's what it is. And, um, for me, that is humbling. It's just humbling, you know, because, I think when I was younger, I was definitely much more oriented to not just in yoga, though certainly there, but in in many sectors, politically, you know, sort of in terms of work. And so I was kind of, there there has to be that place where I could go or that group or that community or that job or that profession or whatever, where it's all like basically like a really good thing, like just hundred percent or at least 99, you know what I mean? Like whatever, just, it's not this kind of having to negotiate the mess every day. But I just, I don't know. I'm too old now. I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> can't sell that very easily. No, it's, you can't sell it. And I think that that's part of why it's not popular in yeah. in this country specifically, because we're very focused on selling the answer yep. to whoever will buy it. Well, we could go on. I do have a feeling that this could continue, <laughs> but I really want to thank you. I'm going to pause. I'm going to thank you so much for starting this conversation with me and continuing this conversation. And I can't say enough about the insight you've provided uh, in terms of the ripples that even just looking at one piece of media can offer us. It's been really gratifying to talk to you about it. Oh, thanks, Harry. This has been super fun. It's I really enjoy having conversation. Thank you for um, making it happen. Yeah, that's my pleasure. And before before we sign off, I do want to give people an opportunity if they don't already uh, know you or know you on social media. If you want to give them an opportunity to find uh, public places where you are in the internet, yeah, for sure. So I have a website, carolhortonphd.com, and there's kind of an archive of my books and articles and podcasts, whatever stuff there. And I'm um, also on Facebook and Twitter. And then I'm so highly involved with the Yoga Service Council and have been for several years that I want to mention that as well. That's um, www.yogaservicecouncil.org. And um, I'm the vice president of that organization. And we're a nonprofit that is dedicated to really making yoga and mindfulness practices truly accessible to everyone. So um, if that sounds like something of interest, I'd encourage people to look at that. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Carol Horton. If you want to talk more about the documentary or anything else that's come up around that, feel free to drop me a note or find me on Facebook at 
facebook.com slash yoga for the revolution. And until next time, keep breathing and live to fight another day.